Welcome to Optimizing. This is Barry Gulatsky. And this is Karen Gammy. Karen, so uh, this podcast really has the theme leading Africa's digital future, and it's meant to be constructed as a conversation. But it's not just any conversation, it's an intergenerational conversation. In the first six episodes of the podcast, the conversation has largely focused around me. We've spoken about me and my generation and how we laid some of the foundations for the digital economy and the IT industries that currently exists in South Africa. But you, Karen, are sitting on the other side of this intergenerational conversation. And we should talk a bit about you. I just wonder if you could maybe talk a bit about what you're currently doing. What, what do you do at the moment? So right now I'm at, at APSA, the big red bank, and I'm working in the home loans team under the credit risk division doing acquisitions and pricing strategy. So that's everything from building particular pieces of analyses to, to some maybe more complicated models to essentially helping other teams come up with propositions uh, as it relates to either acquisitions, so the onboarding of new customers, and or pricing. So how do we price the home loan with your interest rate? So I know that you are moving to another job soon quite an exciting job so maybe tell us a bit about what you're going to be doing yes this has been the most exciting thing that's been on my mind for the last couple of weeks um so i will be moving over to the ai team which is still at apsa just in a different building so yeah the artificial intelligence team and they do a lot of fraud work fraud detection anomaly detection that kind of thing and then they also do stuff on some kind of heuristics work as it relates to behavioral profiles of customers either within the bank or within cib so that's pretty much going to be my job from April onwards. I start on the 1st of April. Hopefully it's not an April Fool's joke because it would be so <laughs> cruel. <laughs> um, but yes, that's what I'm going to be doing for the foreseeable So that's future. quite interesting because you, you're moving into what I guess would be called a, a, an IT kind of job where you're going to be doing AI and machine learning. Yes. And it's quite interesting in terms of where you come from um, educationally. So in terms of how you started off post-school, what did you do after school? When I left high school, I was a little bit unsure as to what I wanted to do. And I'm kind of embarrassed to disclose how I got into what I ended up doing. But essentially what had happened was I was confused about what I wanted to study. And there was a really attractive person sitting next to me who told me that she was going to study philosophy and I seemed smart and I should do it too. And I thought, okay, this person is smart and pretty, why not? <laughs> and so I essentially took up philosophy, which was a good move in, in the end. But yeah, I studied philosophy and economics at the University of Cape Town. And yeah, um, that was that was the, the educational background. So you, you've got a UCT degree in philosophy. And then you, you kind of did some stuff, some internship stuff after university yes. and before you joined APSA. What, what did you do as an intern? Yeah, so yeah, so I had graduated or I was about to graduate and I was still unsure as to what I wanted to do. Did I want to study further? Did I want to study something completely different? And I thought, let me just try my hand at, at some kind of internship. Maybe it'll help out. And there was a fintech I think it was on LinkedIn or something, but they had uh, graduate programs going going on. So I applied for one and it was at a place called Prodigy Finance. And they had a really interesting business model where they provide micro loans to people wanting to do 
their master's degree in a country that's not their home country. So I thought, yeah, that seems cool. Uh, dress code is super relaxed, everyone's super chill. Seemed like my kind of vibe straight out of varsity. And part of the internship was you had to rotate around different teams for like a week or two. And there was a data science team there. Everyone looked really weird and really cool and I didn't really understand what they did. So I thought I have to do a project there. And the first project that I was essentially working on, they were doing some probability of default modeling for their risk or credit risk team. And so at that stage, they were just extracting data, trying to clean it, that kind of stuff. So the head of the data science team told me, you know, if I could learn enough Python within that week or the, that week and a half, and I could clean some stuff, then, you know, I could come back and keep doing the, the rotations with them. So I learned enough terrible Python <laughs> within the week to make this thing work. It was a very hacky way of doing things, but I thought it was really, really cool. It was a nice way to, to yeah, to, to make babies, I guess. You, you code something up, you run it, sometimes it breaks, but then sometimes it also works. And that was really the draw for me. Um, so I kept doing that. And then towards the end of the internship, I, I figured, well, actually before the internship ended, I also then did a stint with the creditors team. They were also doing probability of default modeling. And it seemed really interesting just because it was a deeply technical part, which was cool and what I liked about data science, but it also then really spoke to humans. So, you know, you're giving people loans and you're really negotiating kind of the rest of their next five years and how they're going to be managing their payments. So I, I found that really interesting. And I thought it would be cool to join those two worlds, the data science with the credit risk or, or something like that. And so towards the end of my internship, I was looking for another internship and I landed up at Woolworths Financial Services, which was really, really cool. And similar thing, you started off in portfolio management, then went to acquisitions and then existing customer management. And you were responsible for overseeing the three products that they had. So the Woolworths store card, the credit card, and then the personal loan. So that was really, really interesting. Um, but there was just credit risk. And because they're part of a joint venture between APSA and Woolworths, group, like the retail group. It's really hard to do cool, sexy stuff because you've got to get sign on from like both the parents, <laughs> both of whom are exceptionally conservative or were at that time. So it was hard to do cool, sexy stuff, but it was a really nice environment to learn. And I think the team that I got to work with was super young and super fresh and they really wanted things to be cool and sexy. But before I actually left Woolworths, I really just missed Joburg and I missed my family and my friends. I thought, nah, it's time to get out. I've had enough of this mountain, enough of this crisp, clean air. I hate it. I want to go back to Joburg. And yeah, that's when I started looking for jobs and I landed up at APSA. So here you are back in Joburg working at yes. APSA, <laughs> about to do machine learning and AI. Yeah. And it's interesting because the path you've been on seems quite unusual. You know, you, 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 you landing up doing data science and AI and all these cutting edge of the industrial revolution kind of things, but yet your, your educational background is in philosophy. And it seems like when you started off, uh, landing up where you are now was really the least likely thing you were likely to do. But it's interesting to me because the path you've tread is very much a path that's tread by a lot of people in the IT industry in South Africa. And this was one of the key findings in the research that was done on the South African IT sector in the late 1990s. We spoke in a previous episode, episode five, about some of the recommendations made in the CITES report 
it came out in 2000, um, just to remind listeners that CITES stands for the South African IT Industrial Strategy. And in 2005, I launched the JCSE at WITS as a response to the CITES report. One of the JCSE's key roles pulled from the CITES report was about skills development. And this issue of skills was, and still remains, one of the most important issues in South Africa and Africa today. So there's obviously a shortage of skills throughout the job market, but why in particular is there a shortage of people in the IT industry or IT skills in South Africa and other parts of Africa? Work in the IT industry is an example of what we call knowledge work, and it needs highly skilled workers. Throughout the world, there's always been a shortage of people with these kind of skills. And as the digital economy has grown, the demand for people who can develop new systems and maintain and run them has increased. The developed countries in North America and Europe have always had the fastest growing digital economies and they've learned to depend on drawing skills from the rest of the world. Since the early days of computing, the developed countries like the US, Europe, have always sucked skills out of developing countries in in the IT sector. If you went and visited any major company in the US or Europe today, you'll find a large number of Asian, Eastern European, and an increasing number of African IT workers. You'll also find lots of South Africans. So in the 1990s, as the demand for IT skills in the developed countries continued to grow, and when the cost of employing skilled people in those countries became too high, work started to be outsourced to places like India, Mexico and parts of Eastern Europe. This form of outsourcing certainly had good and beneficial effects on the economies that were receiving the work. In low-wage economies like India, software developers and, and other IT professionals might earn less in Western terms, but they earn relatively high salaries in their own countries which means that they join the middle class and do pretty well. In South Africa, the supply of IT skills has always been far lower than demand. There have been estimates of the skills gap, which are really difficult to make, but some experts have put it at 20 to 30,000. In other words, we currently need an extra 20,000 or more skilled workers in the IT sector. This has led to salaries in the IT sector being far higher in relative terms than in other countries. And it's particularly true for people like software developers and more recently for data scientists and people working in AI. You'll be happy to hear that. It has also led to some of the work in South Africa's IT industry being outsourced from South Africa to other low-cost countries, such as India. One of our large banks, for example, currently outsources all of its software testing to India at the cost of hundreds of millions of rands a year. 
the scarcity of digital skills has also led to comparatively high salaries being paid locally. Another fun fact about IT skills is that it's really difficult to get high-quality IT experts to teach at our universities. We're looking at people with PhDs typically. So a graduate in software engineering or computer science currently earns a higher salary a year or two after she graduates than her far more qualified and experienced lecturer who taught her. So this obviously means that that lecturer is very tempted or even actively poached into a job in the IT industry. As soon as I started thinking about the South African IT industry in the mid-1990s, I became really interested in our local skills crisis. It's one of those things about South Africa that really doesn't make sense. On the one hand, we have this burning need to employ thousands of IT people. But on the other hand, we have one of the highest unemployment rates in the world. Our youth unemployment rate, and youth are those people in the 15 to 24 age group, those who aren't in full-time education or employment. But our youth unemployment rate was over 50% in the mid-1990s, and it's still about the same 30 years later. This is the highest youth unemployment rate in the world. It's uh, something that we should really see as a national emergency. We have this crazy situation as well of having a very high graduate unemployment rate. That is, people with university degrees who can't find work. To make one point clear though, I'm not claiming that training IT people will make a huge dent directly on, on unemployment in South Africa. The local IT industry can, at best, provide additional jobs for tens or maybe hundreds of thousands, while there are millions of people that are unemployed. However, each highly skilled job in the IT sector creates between five and ten jobs in other sectors. It's what we call a multiplier effect. Also, if we could get our supply of skills and our salary levels right, we could become a major destination for IT work that's being outsourced from Europe and America. In the scientist process, my personal role was as a member of the, the working group on skills, which meant that I was partly responsible for writing the recommendations on skills development in the CITES report. Just before we go on, you mentioned that you're, you were part of this working group. What exactly did that entail? Did that mean you applied for the job? Did someone approach you? Um, yeah. So the way that the CITES process worked is that it was run by PricewaterhouseCooper from Canada and they came into South Africa because the funding came from the Canadian government and they were working with the South African Department of Trade and Industry and they consulted local experts. They formed a number of working groups in different disciplines and I was invited to be on the one around skills. So it was by invitation and they, they went out and looked for people who were working in particular areas and had expertise in that. 
One thing that I really appreciated about you saying that we can fulfill these IT jobs, but it's not necessarily going to be this magic bullet that solves the unemployment crisis. And I think that is something that, that a lot of people don't think about. And they're just like, we fulfill the fourth industrial revolution, everything is fine. And that's, that's definitely not it. So yeah, so you've spoken about the sheer number of IT jobs that are required. Um, so we need to get 20,000 people in, in this industry. But what about the types of jobs that are required? It's quite useful to think of jobs and the associated skills in the IT sector as a huge pyramid. As you move up the pyramid from its base to its point, the level of skills increase. At the base we have entry-level skills because that's the widest part of the pyramid that corresponds to the largest number of jobs requiring that level of skills. As you go up the pyramid, the level of skills increases and the number of people needed at that higher level gets smaller because the pyramid gets narrower. At the point of the pyramid, we have the highest level of skills, but we need the smallest number of people to fill jobs at that level. So to explain this a bit more, let me try to relate this to specific areas of work in the IT industry. And let's think about something close to my heart and that's software development. In software development, of course, the overall task is to convert a business requirement of some sort into a working software application. The development team would typically be structured so that it has a large number of lower skilled people doing jobs that are important but more routine, for example, tasks like testing or getting all the parts of the user interface to look consistent. And then there would be a smaller number of people doing the jobs halfway up the pyramid. These are the jobs requiring more skill and experience, such as analyzing business requirements or developing the more complex aspects of the software. And finally, there might be only one or two people who sit at the peak of this pyramid who will be responsible for uh, developing the software architecture and doing the design and also solving the trickiest problems. A company that's doing lots of software development work would need to employ people in proportion suggested by the skills pyramid. Uh, they would have a huge problem if there was a shortage at any level in the pyramid. Without the skills at all levels, it's hard to get the work done. In the South African IT sector, we've always seen gaps in the skills pyramid. In the 1990s and 2000s, most of the formerly trained IT people in South Africa were coming out of our universities. They had three or four year degrees in engineering, computer science, information systems, or IT. The skills pyramid was sort of top heavy. The skills that we had were in the middle or the point of the pyramid, but there were far too few entry-level skills at the base of the pyramid. So one of the reasons for this is that South African school leavers and their parents have traditionally seen university as the only option for tertiary education. Vocational training in any discipline has been seen as second best, as uh, somewhat inferior. So a matriculant interested in IT, but it didn't meet the entry requirements for, for an IT degree, 
would rather do an easier to get into but non-IT degree at a university than go to a college or get an entry-level IT qualification. There were a number of consequences of our top-heavy IT skills pyramid. One was that lower-level work was outsourced, um, such as the example that I gave of, of the bank sending its testing to India. Another was that higher-skilled people were required to do lower-skilled jobs. And this led to high levels of job dissatisfaction. It also made the cost of doing work more expensive. The third consequence of our incomplete skills pyramid was that we did begin to see informal pathways to gaining IT skills coming into the IT sector. In the past four or five years, we've in fact seen these informal pathways such as coding academies, having grown tremendously. I'll talk about these informal pathways a bit later, but in terms of the formal pathways, there were and still are a number of huge challenges. Okay, so I'm assuming that the formal pathways that you're describing relate specifically to degree programs that are in our universities. And you mentioned that there are huge challenges around this. So what are some of these challenges? A young person who's coming to the end of school and is interested in working in the IT industry has a number of options to explore. She could apply to one of the IT-related degree programs offered by our universities. She could also look at IT training programs offered by any other non-university tertiary institutions. However, as I said earlier, most school leavers tend to see studying at university as the only viable option. The programs typically offered by universities are in computer science, which is usually in the Faculty of Science, information systems or IT, which is typically in a commerce faculty, and some variant of electrical engineering. Uh, you might find this last option a bit weird. Uh, why? electrical engineering. Well, historically, there's been a very strong connection between computers, both their hardware aspects and software, and electrical engineering. Many of the top experts in the world in the IT industry are electrical engineers. In fact, I'm an electrical engineer. In the late 1990s, I asked the chief information officer at Investec Bank why he employs mostly electrical engineers in his department. He said that the systems that they were developing in his business were large, real-time distributed systems of the same complexity as many large engineering systems. He found it much easier to teach an engineer about banking than to teach a banker about engineering. So our middle and top IT skills, the higher level of the skills pyramid, ideally come from our universities. I say ideally because in practice it's a bit more complex than that. Um, many South African companies complain about the competence of graduates coming out of our university programs, IT programs at our local universities, even from our top universities. They feel that our university education in the IT discipline 
is too generic and theoretical. Company executives have actually told me that computer science and IT graduates from South African universities are pretty useless. One executive complained that a graduate he, he employed knew nothing about SAP or Oracle. Just, uh, just in case there are some listeners who haven't experienced the joys and travesties of SAP and Oracle, do you maybe want to give us an overview as to what those two systems are? Well, these are two of the most popular software packages. They're also called ERP system that many large organizations run. Large organizations like banks and government departments buy these big systems like SAP and then they develop their own customized software that extends or adapts certain aspects of its capability. And this requires very specific knowledge relevant to SAP or to Oracle. The executive I spoke to, in fact, was very upset that a university IT graduate did not have the specific knowledge of how to extend the capability of SAP. But personally, I don't see this as a problem. Something that our company execs don't understand is that universities can't and shouldn't be turning out graduates with such specific skills. In my mind, the aim of a university is to develop people who have deep foundational knowledge and the ability to learn new things quickly. For example, in India, the major IT companies like TCS recruit top IT graduates from top IT universities, and then they send them off to a company training facility for six to nine months where they don't earn money for the company, but they learn the specific technologies and processes required in the job they'll be doing. Most South African companies are really reluctant to invest anything in training of newly graduated recruits. They put them to work on day one and expect them to contribute immediately to the delivery of projects. They then blame the universities if there are gaps in the skills of these graduates. However, I will concede that many of our university programs in South Africa do fail to produce IT graduates with the right level of foundational knowledge and a strong enough ability to learn new things. So, Barry, obviously your life has been a series of wonderful mic drop moments and the last, what, six episodes have been testament to that. So I feel like it's really appropriate to have another mic drop moment now. And I want you to tell us a little bit about how you were involved in improving the IT-related degree program at WITS. Well, um, in the 1990s, as I said, I became really interested in IT skills and very involved in the curricula in WITS University's then Department of Electrical Engineering. Speaking to graduates of our department, who went into IT jobs and to the IT managers in the companies that employed them, I saw lots of gaps in their foundational knowledge. I proposed the introduction of a separate stream in the electrical engineering degree program, which would cater for graduates interested in working in the IT industry as software engineers. I drove the uh, development of a whole new curriculum and I had strong support in this from the then head of department at that time, 
Professor Charles Landy and several other of our colleagues, we got it accepted via various faculty and university committees, which was not an easy task. We also had to have it accredited by the Engineering Council of South Africa, or EXA, as a professional engineering qualification. So this all happened in the late 1990s. We called this new stream information engineering, and it allowed students in their third year of the four-year degree to either follow the standard electrical engineering program or to follow a curriculum that would better prepare them for work in the IT sector. Um, just as an aside, I'm often asked why we called it information engineering rather than software engineering, which would be more logical. The reason had everything to do with university politics. The WITS Computer Science Department saw this new program as a threat to them recruiting good school leavers. They claimed that computer science owned the word software engineering. The compromise we reached was to call it information engineering, although under the hood, the curriculum was modeled on international guidelines for a program in software engineering. Then in 2000, when WITS reorganized and consolidated all its faculties and departments, our Department of Electrical Engineering became the School of Electrical and Information Engineering. A few years later, in fact, I had another bash at shaking up the WITS University IT curricula. In speaking to school kids who were interested in studying quote, computers or IT, I noticed that they and their parents and teachers had no clue about the difference between computer science, information systems, and the new information or software engineering program. Lots of young people chose to do computer science simply because it had computer in the title. Many landed up wishing that they had done information engineering or electrical engineering. The IT-related degree options at WITS and other South African universities forces school leavers to immediately enter a stream straight off to school. It's impossible to change streams two or three years into the degree program. As an alternative to this early streaming, I developed a new curriculum based around a funnel strategy. I called it Applied Computing, and in years one and two, students covered material from all three streams, that is computer science, information systems, and engineering. In year three, they got to pick courses to specialize in one of the streams. The intention was that after finishing the three-year Applied Computing degree, they would then go on to do a fourth year leading to an honors degree in information systems or computer science, or they could enter the third year in the electrical engineering, information engineering stream, and land up with a professional engineering qualification. I believe then, and I still believe now, that this is exactly the best way to go. In practice, however, it didn't work. The university again for internal political reasons, decided to locate 
this applied computing program which I had developed in the School of Computer Science who ran it. And they ran it badly. For a few years they kept the program running and then they killed it. I'm still very bitter and twisted about this. We did see a few very successful graduates from applied computing and in future episodes of the podcast, I'll be in conversation with some of these graduates. That is really disappointing, and I'm sad that that was the outcome for so many people who were enrolled in this particularly promising program. Yes, but more in season two. <laughs> um, so we spent a little bit of time unpacking the, the formal pathways and, and the challenges that come with it. Um, but I now want to understand some of the informal pathways into the IT career or, or IT industry? Um, if we think again about the skills pyramid and about the huge shortage of IT skills in South Africa, the formal pathway into an IT job can never produce the numbers required at the middle and peak of the pyramid, partly because IT-related degree programs like engineering, computer science and information systems require matriculants with very good marks in maths and science. And as we all know, a tiny proportion of successful matriculants have marks in these subjects that are good enough to get into university. Uh, for this and for other reasons, people have over a very long period of time entered into IT jobs without formal IT qualifications. This makes the IT profession very different from professions like law or medicine or accounting. In all of these, people must have a formal qualification. If you're a brain surgeon, you have to be formally qualified to meddle with people's brains. I know lots of people in the local IT industry in very senior technical jobs at the very peak of the pyramid we have no formal IT qualifications. In many cases, their highest formal qualification is a matric certificate. Through the JCSE, which I established, as I said, in 2005, I've developed a number of programs aimed at raising the skills of people who, for whatever reason, have not been able to follow a formal IT program. At the entry level, in other words, at the base of the skills pyramid, I drew inspiration from one of the most successful IT skills programs in South African history. It was run by a company called Van Salem Pritchard, also called VZAP, from the 1970s into the 1990s. At first, it focused on training COBOL programmers. COBOL and some of its offshoots like Natural and Adabas were the dominant programming languages used in developing all commercial and government software in South Africa from the 1970s until well into the 90s. COBOL was one of the dominant languages at the time of the mainframe computers which I described in episode one. It's interesting to note that even in this modern time of digital transformation and the fourth industrial revolution, many of the key IT systems that run our banks and parts of government are still old legacy COBOL systems. For example, the software at the heart of the systems 
that SARS uses to manage our tax collection is written in COBOL. So BZAP and Salem Pritchard and a few other similar companies trained thousands of COBOL developers in across many years. If you ask a senior IT professional in South Africa where they received their training, many will still tell you that they were trained at Fonsal and Pritchard. How did this visa program work? The secret to their success, and it was very successful as a commercial business, was in an aptitude test. The business model was that anyone interested in becoming a COBOL programmer would take the VZAP test. It really didn't matter if you were a school leaver with poor matric marks or someone with a PhD in rocket science. How a person performed in this test was the only factor used in VZAP's decision on whether to train you. The test measures five characteristics and successful candidates needed to score well in all of these dimensions and have an overall score higher than 70%. Successful candidates received free COBOL training from VZAP over a six to nine month period. They were then placed in jobs in banks and other large companies and organizations. VZAP recovered the cost of training together with the profit from the employer as a placement fee. So the VZAP model, which was a very successful business model, depended on the fact that every person accepted for training would successfully complete the training and do well once they went to work. The uh, company VZAP would lose money if they trained the wrong people. The magic ingredient in the VZAP business model was the aptitude test. It's interesting that what VZAP found over many years of running their test was that almost exactly 10% of people taking the test achieved the 70% pass mark. Factors such as matric results, formal tertiary education, gender, social background, etc. seem to make no difference. I like to think that 10% of our population is wired to, to be software developers, although I have to stress that this hasn't been verified through a formal academic research study. In 2012, with support from Accenture, I arranged for 200 unemployed young people to take the VZAP test. Believe it or not, of these 200, 20 passed the test, in other words, 10%. They all were trained for six months in Java, and although I haven't followed the career of all 20 of them, those that I have followed have built very successful careers in the local IT sector. So this encouraged me to set up a skills pipeline program in the JCSE based on this VZAP model. So maybe just before we move on, one thing that I'm finding really interesting is, I've, you know, I've never heard of VZAP before, but there's a, a company that does like a similar thing called Explore Data Science Academy. And they also run off, you don't necessarily need a particular degree or anything, but you go through this aptitude test online. And then if you get a certain mark, then you essentially get trained up as a, as a data scientist or an AI practitioner for several months. And then you get placed into a bank or some sort of business to do an internship. And it's really interesting to see that this is 
you know, it's not a new idea. Um, I had no idea that there was such an old business model, although maybe the 70s isn't that long ago. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, yeah, I like I liked that little that, that story. And um, just to say that I have worked closely recently with Explore Data Science Academy and others who we've spoken a lot about the models we use. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of cross-pollination yeah, going on. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, they do really, really cool stuff. So you were mentioning the JCSE, and I want to understand how exactly the JCSE skills pipeline works. So it's a two-year program, and like the visa program, it places huge emphasis on selecting the right students. The selection process sets it apart from other entry-level skills programs. There's also a strong focus on job placement at the end of the program. What I see happening in a lot of the IT skills programs being run at the moment is that there's an overemphasis on hitting target numbers. Someone gets funding to train 100 Java developers, say. So an advert goes out for candidates to be trained, and almost anyone who applies is offered a place in the training program. There's also very little emphasis on what happens after the program. No one seems to ask whether there are jobs for a hundred new Java developers. If one accepts Van Salem Pritchard's observation that only 10% of people have the aptitude to be a successful software developer, there's a high possibility that most of these hundred randomly selected trainees will be like square pegs in round holes. They might slog their way through the training, but they're not natural software developers, and they'll either drop out or drift out of the IT sector as soon as they can. The JCSE skills pipeline selects trainees from among young people who are unemployed and have no previous background in IT. They have typically finished school and have either not managed to get into tertiary education because they don't have enough money or good enough matric marks or they can't afford it or they've dropped out of university for, for whatever reason. Our selection criteria is based on the two A's, aptitude and attitude. To assess aptitude, we either use the VSAP test or some um, modern equivalent and we found that the best way to assess attitude is a face-to-face -face interview. In order to maximize the possibility of job placement at the end of the program, we have discussions with potential employers before the training starts to inform ourselves of what companies are looking for in terms of newly trained entry-level interns or junior developers. As far as possible, we try to know upfront where each trainee is headed at the beginning of the training. Trainees enter the pipeline in cohorts of between 20 and 30. In the first year, training is instructor-led in the classroom environment. They develop core IT skills, leading to a number of industry-recognized qualifications, such as CompTIA A+, Microsoft C Sharp, or um, the Oracle Java exam. We do also train people in cybersecurity using the Cisco CCNA certificate. 
In the second year of, of the training, we put them into an internship, which is either run via the JCSE or within a partner company. And the important thing is that we put our interns into real development teams where they work together with a few expert software developers on real projects with real customers and real deliverables. It's a form of apprenticeship and we found that it works really well. Cool. So what about the skills higher up on the skills pyramid? The huge issue in South Africa is finding ways for people to move up the digital skills pyramid. How does someone with entry-level skills or mid-level skills acquire higher-level skills or newer skills? There are lots of people who entered the IT industry without a formal qualification. We said this before. At first, they do really well, and they move up the skills pyramid for a few years, learning new skills on the job. And then after 10 years or so, they get stuck. They don't have the depth of foundational knowledge that a computer science or engineering graduate would have. They reach a level of seniority where a formal qualification becomes important. At this stage, they become keen to get some kind of formal qualification, such as a university degree. But how can they do this? It's almost impossible to enter formal education at this stage in your professional life or in your personal life. In 2004, at the same time I was beginning to set up the JCSE at Viz, I devised a program to deal with this need. In the first few years, it was exclusively for people working at FNB. They sponsored it and we worked together on it. It was built around a master's by coursework program called the MEng in software engineering. MEng stands for Master of Engineering. And it was offered via the Witt School of Electrical and Information Engineering. This MEng required students to complete eight courses and then undertake a design project and a small research project. The people I wanted to support would typically have no formal education after school, but had 10 years or more of practical work experience in the IT sector. They therefore didn't meet the entry requirements for a master's level degree. These requirements say that people wanting to enter a master's program must have an honors level degree. Wits and many other universities do, however, have another mechanism for accepting students into postgrad programs. It aims to deal with what are called mature students. The WITS policy says that anyone with a certain number of years of suitable work experience can be accepted into a master's program, even though he or she doesn't meet the formal entry requirements. Although this is the policy, the VIS committee responsible for deciding on whether to accept applications from mature students is very risk-averse. They need a lot of convincing that someone without an undergrad degree can cope with master's level courses. The normal response from this committee is to reject applicants. My plan in the JCSE was to offer five of the eight image courses 
as part of a sequence of short courses. We called this the Continuing Professional Development, or CPD, program. Each CPD course was identical to one of the MEng courses. In fact, it was exactly the same course, taught on the same timetable, by the same lecturer in the same classroom. CPD students wrote the same exam as the MN students. After passing three or four CPD courses with an average of 60% or more, I supported the student's application to be accepted as a mature student into the MNG program. I could provide the committee with tangible evidence in the form of marks for courses actually completed that the CPD student would be able to cope with master's level courses. In every case, the university's graduate studies committee has accepted mature student applications I've supported. From 2005 onwards, I've had up to 40 students per year enroll for the CPD. Many have gone on to convert to the MNG. The program has been hugely successful. Hundreds of people who've earned of its MNG degree via my CPD program have gone on to fill senior positions in some of our top ICT companies. In future podcast episodes, I'll invite some of these leaders to share their stories. So I know that you've also worked with school kids and CIOs. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? These are the two extremes of the skills pyramid. And yes, I've run programs for high school children to get them interested in careers in the digital economy. And I've also worked with another VIT center called the Link Center to run a professional certificate in CIO practice which is aimed at preparing CIOs for their future roles as leaders in the IT industry. We'll talk more about these in a future episode of our podcasts. So one thing that I really appreciated about this episode is is we got to kind of explore this intellectual elitism that comes with any form of education and how you said it before, but you would maybe not have the entrance requirements to do the degree that you want to, but instead of doing a vocational program, you're going to do the next best thing at a university, just so you're still in the university setting. And I can see how this ends up affecting people in the long run. Um, And so I think it's really cool and super important that you've been able to support a pipeline for people to do courses and and things like that, that really support what they should be doing in a a career-centered way. So that feels really important. And I think that the, the key message for me is Uh, getting the round pegs into round holes. I think getting people to do the right thing and then supporting them to grow in this industry. And I think it's important also for people to take ownership of their own learning. Mm. I think when you get to it, the skills are owned by the individual that has them. So people have to own their learning and really grow as far as they can and as far as their their time and their aptitude lets them grow. And I think to me personally, to be involved in, in uh, developing IT skills, it's kind of the feedback that I get. So I find it really, and I suppose any 
teacher, any academic finds this the most rewarding thing to bump into previous students and hear them say how much they grew and they appreciated what I did in terms of helping them grow their skills. And I now see, because I'm very old, I see lots and lots of people, some I don't even remember, who come up to me and talk about how I helped them grow and develop. And that's really important and really rewarding for me. Thank you for listening to Optimizing. A quick message before we finish this episode, and that is that at the end of the season, which is after the next episode, we will be doing a special episode in which listeners to the podcast can pose questions and leave us comments. The way that you can get them to us is to produce an audio clip, either as a voice note or using the sound recording app on your phone. And you can post it to any of our social media sites, including the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can send it or a text message to our special email address, which is optimizing.podcast at gmail.com. That's optimizing with a Z dot podcast at gmail.com. Production for this episode was by me, Barry Dwalatsky. You heard the voices of Karen Gammy and myself. Logo design and editing was done by Evan Wigdorovitz. Sound and music by Callum Cool. And mixed by Joshua Clark. <laughs>